Chapter 33 Wolf helped Scarlet clean and bandage her wounded finger without asking her to tell him what exactly had happened. Though his expression had said he was ready to tear out Queen Lavanna's jugular, his hands had been breathlessly gentle. Afterward, Scarlet insisted she be given time to bathe, and though Wolf had looked borderline devastated, the time apart was worthwhile. The tiny washroom in his childhood home was by no means luxurious, but it was a far cry from the trough she'd had in the menagerie, and she felt brand new when she emerged. She and Winter were given new clothes out of Maha Kesley's meager stash while theirs were washed, though Scarlet was already anxious to have her hoodie back. It had become her own personal armor. I can't believe you kidnapped Prince Kai, she said, untacking the curtain on the front window to peek outside. Blue daisies in a window box were a solitary spot of color. Emperor Kai, Wolf corrected. He was leaning against the wall, holding the hem of her shirt in his fingers. Winter was taking her turn in the washroom, while the others had crowded into the kitchen, trying to cobble together enough food for everyone. Scarlet had heard someone mention rations, and it occurred to her that this tiny household wasn't meant to support guests, especially so many. Wolf's mom would be back soon from collecting that week's supply of food, but of course, that was meant for only one woman. Scarlet tried to imagine what this must be like for Wolf, to return home more than a decade after being taken away, a grown man with scars and fangs, and the blood of countless victims on his hands. And now, with a girl. Scarlet was trying not to think about meeting his mother. It all felt too strange. Emperor, right, she retacked the curtain. That's weird to say, after 18 years of listening to celebrity gossip feeds go on and on about Earth's favorite prince. She claimed one of the lumpy sofa cushions, curling her legs beneath her. I had a picture of him taped to my wall when I was 15. Grand Mare cut it off a cereal box. Wolf scowled. Of course, half the girls in the world probably had that same picture from that same cereal box. Wolf scrunched his shoulders against his neck, and Scarlet grinned, teasing. Oh no, you're not going to have to fight him for pack dominance now, are you? Come here. She beckoned him with a wave of her hand, and he was at her side in half a second, the glower softening as he pulled her against his chest. His brazenness was new, so different from the shyness she'd grown accustomed to. On the Rampion, Wolf was always pattering around his feelings like he didn't want to risk the tentative trust they'd started to rebuild since Paris. Now, when he kissed her or put his arms around her, Scarlet felt like he was staking a claim, which normally would have sent her on a tirade about relationship independence, except she felt like she'd claimed him a long time ago. The moment she'd expected him to choose her over his pack, the moment she'd dragged him aboard the ship and taken him away from everything he'd ever known, She'd made the decision for them both. He was hers now, just like she was his. Except she wondered if everything had changed between them once again. She figured he would come back to the farm with her when all this was over. 
But now he'd been reunited with his mom, the only family he had left. Scarlet could no longer assume she was the most important thing to him, and she knew it wouldn't be fair to ask him to choose between her and the family he'd been taken away from. Not now, and maybe not ever. In the kitchen, a cupboard slammed, saving her from thoughts she wasn't ready for. Not when she'd just found him again. She heard Thorne say something about freeze-dried cardboard, and Iko accuse him of being insensitive to those without any taste buds at all. Scarlet nestled her head against Wolf's shoulder. I was so worried about you. You were worried? Wolf angled her away from him. Scarlet, they took you, and I couldn't do anything about it. I didn't know if you were dead, or if they were... He shuddered. I would have killed every one of them to get to you. I would have done anything to get you back. Knowing that we were coming here was the only thing that kept me sane. His brow creased. Though there were a couple of times when I went a little insane anyway. Scarlet nudged him with her elbow. That shouldn't sound as romantic as it does. Dinner is served, said Thorne coming out of the kitchen with a plate in each hand. And by dinner, I mean soggy brown rice and oversalted meat on stale crackers. You lunars sure know how to live it up. We were trying to only take things from the pantry, said Cinder, as she and Iko filed into the front room, though there was hardly enough space for everyone. There isn't much in the way of fresh food, and Maha's already given us enough. Scarlet glanced at Wolf. I assumed you'd never had tomatoes or carrots before because those things couldn't be grown here on Luna. But that's not the case, is it? They just don't ship them to the outer sectors. He shrugged, without a hint of self-pity. I don't know what they can and can't grow in the agriculture sectors. Whatever it is, I'm sure it can't compete with Benoit Farms and Gardens. His eyes twinkled, and Scarlet, to her own surprise started to blush again. You two are giving me a stomach ache, Thorn griped. I'm pretty sure that's the meat, said Cinder, ripping a piece of dried mystery meat with her teeth. The food wasn't appetizing, but it was no worse than what she'd gotten in the menagerie, and Scarlet ate her small share with relish. Winter emerged from the washroom, her dark ringlets still dripping, and the two short pants and ill-fitted blouse doing nothing to lessen her beauty. A hush fell over the group as she joined them, kneeling on the floor around the small table and scanning the food with sad, distant eyes. Scarlet spoke first, pushing a couple of crackers across the table. I know it's not what you are used to, she said, but you have to eat something. A fence flashed across Winter's face. I'm not particular. Her expression softened as she stared at the crackers. I just hadn't realized how much I'd been given. I knew conditions were bad in the outer sectors, but not as bad as this. Others have gone hungry so my stomach might be full each night. Sighing, she sat back on her heels and folded her hands in her lap. I'm not hungry anyway. Someone else can have mine. Winter, I'm not hungry. Her voice was sterner than Scarlet had ever heard it. I couldn't eat it if I tried. Scarlet frowned, but let it go. 
Wolf eventually ate the crackers, looking guilty about it. You said Jason told you where to find us, said Cinder. Her shoulders were tense, and it had been clear from the moment Scarlet had explained what she could about their escape that Jason wasn't popular with her friends. How did he know? I would imagine, said Winter, that your miniature friend told him. Our miniature friend? asked Cinder. Winter nodded. Cress, isn't it? Silence expanded over them, drawing all the oxygen from the room. Thorn leaned forward first. Cress? You've seen Cress? I haven't seen her in days, but Jason was keeping her safe. Oh, that reminds me, Scarlet dug out the small cylinder. Jason gave this to me and said it had a message from a friend in it. Maybe he meant her. Cress. Thorn snatched it away before she finished talking and flipped the cylinder over in his palm. What is it? How do we work it? Cinder grabbed it away from him and inserted it into the holograph node on the wall. A holograph flickered to life in the center of the room. Scarlet wouldn't have recognized the queen's hacker, having only seen her once through a comm link. The girl's long, unruly hair had been chopped short, and her skin, though still pale, had at least seen the sun in the recent past. Thorn launched himself from his seat, circling the room to put himself in front of the holograph as she began to speak. Hello, everyone. If you're seeing this, our good friends from the palace must have found you. I wish I could have joined them. My current guardian gave me the option of leaving, but I had to stay behind to assist with their travels. I know you'll understand. I wanted you to know I'm all right, though. I'm safe and unhurt, and I know you'll come for me. When you do, I'll be ready. Until then, I promise to be careful and stay hidden. She paused. A fleeting smile crossed her lips, like proof of her courage, though her eyes stayed anxious. After a deep breath, she continued. My absence has probably changed some things for you, and I know you were relying on me for help with some of your plans. I've built a program into this file. Insert this cylinder into the universal port in the dome's broadcast receiver and follow the prompts I've set up for you. On the chance this could fall into the wrong hands, I have locked the program with the same password we used on the ship. Her lashes dipped and there was that weak smile again. I hope this message reaches you safely. I... I miss you. She opened her mouth to say more, but hesitated and shut it again. A second later, the message ended. They stared at the empty air where Cress had been. Scarlet fidgeted with her hoodie zipper, knowing for sure now that the girl had been the one watching over her and Winter during their escape. She had saved them and sacrificed her own safety to do it. Brave, stupid girl, Thorn muttered. He sank back down to the floor, his expression torn between relief and increased distress. She's still with Jason, though, said Jason. I guess I'm grateful for what he's done, but I don't like him knowing where we are or being responsible for Cress. I don't trust him. Winter stared at her, aghast. Jason is a good person. He would never betray you, or Cress. Too late, said Thorn. He already did once. 
Winter laced her fingers together. He regrets betraying you. It was never his intention. He only... He had to come back to Luna. For me. Aiko made a noise that was probably meant to be a snort. Scarlet cocked her head to inspect the android. What had been endearing ticks when she had been the Rampian's control system were a little disconcerting in her humanoid body. It's true, Winter insisted, her eyes crinkling at the corners. I understand why you don't trust him, but he's trying to make amends. He wants to see you back on your throne as much as anyone. He did save my life, added Scarlet. Then, after a pause, she shrugged. Probably just because he needed me to save her life, but still, it has to count for something. Thorn crossed his arms and said grudgingly, I wish he would have tried a little harder to send Cress with you. At least we know she's alive, said Cinder. Thorn grunted. All we know is she's still in Artemisia and under the protection of a guy who betrayed us once. The princess thinks he's on our side? Fine, but that doesn't change the fact he sold us out in New Beijing, and I don't doubt he'll do it again if it means saving his own skin. On the contrary, he cares very little for his own skin. Winter's voice was sharp, her shoulders trembling. It is my safety alone that he cares about, and I will never be safe again so long as my stepmother is the queen. She turned to Cinder. I believe he will do anything he can to help your revolution succeed. We both will. A long silence was followed by Thorn grumbling. I still plan on punching him if I ever see him again. Scarlet rolled her eyes. Cinder tapped her fingers against the table. I don't understand why Lavana tried to have you killed now. She has Kai. She's getting what she wants. I believe she's afraid of losing her grip on Luna, said Winter, especially with the rumors that our true queen is still alive. She's become paranoid, afraid of every potential threat. Cinder shook her head. But you're not her real daughter. Isn't there some superstition about bloodlines? Yes, only a person of royal blood can sit on Luna's throne. It is believed that should a person of non-royal blood ascend to the throne, the gift bestowed upon our people will cease to exist. There have been countless studies proving this. Scarlet laughed. Let me guess, the studies were paid for by the royal family. Does it matter? said Winter. Whether the people believe it or not, my stepmother is frightened. She's desperate to maintain her power. That is why she tried to kill me. Good, said Cinder. People make mistakes when they're desperate. And trying to kill you could be a big one. She leaned back on her hands. From what I can tell, the people adore you. If they knew Levana tried to have you murdered... It could be just the thing to persuade them to choose me over her. Listen, your highness, we have a video. If Cress's program works, we'll be able to play it across all outer sectors. It will tell the people who I am and ask them to join me in ending Lavana's reign. She inhaled. I'd like to include a message from you to show the people you're alive and tell them Lavana was the one who tried to have you killed. Having your support would mean a lot. To them and to me. Winter held her gaze for a long time, considering before she sighed. 
I'm sorry, but I can't. Lavana would find out, and she can't know I'm alive. Why not? said Scarlet. The people care about you. They deserve to know the truth. Jason was ordered to kill me, said Winter, her voice growing weak. And he went through a lot of trouble to make it look like he succeeded. I won't endanger him by announcing the truth. The longer she goes on believing that Jason is loyal to her, the safer he'll be. She looked up again. The safer your crest will be, too. Thorn looked away. I'm sorry that I can't help you with this. For what it's worth, you do have my support, even if it must be a secret. Winter slumped. Scarlet could see her withdrawing into herself and her worries over Jason's safety. She wished she could offer some comfort, but she had spent enough time under Lavana's thumb to know there was nothing she could say that would make Winter feel any better. All right, Cinder conceded. I understand. We'll just have to hope the video succeeds without you. The front door opened, and they all started. Scarlet spun around as a woman shut the door behind her. She wore coveralls dusted with regolith particles and was carrying a worn wooden box full of food. She had wolf's dark hair and olive-toned skin, but she also had the bone structure of a bird. Wolf could have crushed her with his fingertips. Scarlet felt weird for having such a thought. Everyone relaxed, everyone but Scarlet and Wolf, whose arm turned to iron around her. Leaning against the door, Maha surveyed the room with a fluttery smile. They were giving out sugar, she chirped, in celebration of the queen's upcoming. She trailed off, noticing Scarlet with Wolf's arm around her shoulders. Winter stood up, drawing Maha's surprise to her. Scarlet scrambled to her feet, but Maha's attention was caught on the princess now. Her jaw had fallen. Winter curtsied. You must be Mother Kesley. I am Princess Winter Hale Blackburn, and I'm frightfully sorry about the crackers. Maha stared, speechless. I hope you don't mind our intrusion into your hospitality. Your wolf cub welcomed us. He's surprisingly tender, given the teeth and the muscles. Winter raised her eyes to the chipping plaster around the door. He rather reminds me of another wolf I once knew. Scarlet grimaced. Your, your highness, stammered Maha, looking like she wasn't sure if she should be afraid or honored. Mom, said Wolf, this is Scarlet. She's the one we told you about that was taken off our ship by the thaumaturge. She'd been held prisoner in the palace, but she's, she escaped. This is her. This is Scarlet. Maha had not yet managed to pull up her jaw. The earthen, Scarlet nodded. Mostly, my grandfather was lunar, but I never met him, and I have no, um, gift. With that statement, it occurred to Scarlet that Maha probably did have the gift. They all did to some degree, didn't they? Even Wolf had had it before the scientific tampering took it away but it was impossible to imagine this petite woman abusing it like it was abused in the capital. Was that naive? How hard it must be to navigate society here, never knowing who was controlling and who was being controlled. 
Hello, Scarlet, said Maha, composing herself enough to smile. Ze'ev failed to mention he was in love with you. Scarlet could feel her cheeks turning as red as her hair. Thorn muttered, How could you not tell? Cinder kicked him. Wolf gripped Scarlet's hand. We didn't know if she was alive. I didn't want to tell you about her if, if you never met her. Scarlet squeezed his hand. He squeezed back. In the back of her head, she heard her grandma's voice reminding her of her manners. I'm so pleased to meet you. I, um, thank you for your hospitality. Maha set the box of rations by the door and crossed the tiny room, wrapping Scarlet up in a hug. I look forward to getting to know you. Releasing Scarlet, she turned back to Wolf and settled her hands on his shoulders. When they took you away, I feared you would never know love at all. She embraced him, and her smile was as bright as a bouquet of blue daisies. This has all been so much. So very much. Are we almost done with the gushing and the weeping? Said Thorn, massaging his temple. When do we start planning a revolution again? This time, it was Iko that kicked him. I knew you were in love with him, Winter tapped her fingers against her elbow. I can't understand why no one ever listens to me. Scarlet glared, but there was no ire behind it. You're right, Winter. It's a complete mystery. Chapter 34 Lynn Pearl stepped off the elevator, clutching the strings of her purse against her shoulder. She was shaking, livid with rage. Since Cinder had made that spectacle at the ball and been revealed to be not only an insane cyborg, but an even more insane lunar, Pearl's world had crumbled around her. At first, it had been minor inconveniences, annoying but tolerable. With no servant cyborg and no money to hire new help, Pearl was now expected to help around the apartment. Suddenly, she had chores. Suddenly, her mother wanted her to help with the shopping and to cook her own meals and even do the dishes when she'd finished, even though it had been her stupid decision to sell off their only functioning android. But that she could have lived with if her social life hadn't simultaneously splintered along with her dignity. Overnight, she had become a pariah. Her friends had dealt with it well enough at first. Filled with shock and sympathy, they flocked around Pearl like she was a celebrity, wanting to know everything, wanting to offer their condolences, knowing that her adopted sister had been such a terror, wanting to hear every horrific story of their childhood, like a girl who barely escaped death. She had been the center of all their conversations, all their curiosity. That had dwindled, though, when Cinder escaped from prison and remained at large for too long. Her name became synonymous with traitors, and it was dragging Pearl down with it. Then her mother, her ignorant fool of a mother, had unknowingly aided Cinder in the kidnapping of Emperor Kai by giving her their wedding invitations. She'd traded them for napkins. Napkins. And it had baffled her. 
Hours before they were to attend the royal wedding, already dressed in their finest, her mother had torn the apartment apart, frantically digging through every drawer, crawling on her hands and knees to peer beneath the furniture, searching every pocket in her wardrobe, cursing and swearing over and over that she'd had them. She'd seen them just that morning, when that awkward woman from the palace had brought them and explained the mishap. And where could they have gone? They missed the wedding, naturally. Pearl had screamed and cried and hidden in her room to watch the news feeds. The live footage that had gone from talk of wedding traditions and palace decor to a devastating account of an assault on the palace and the disappearance of Emperor Kai. Lynn Cinder was behind it all. Her monstrous stepsister once again had ruined everything. It had taken two days for the palace's security team to trace the invitations of a Bristol Darren, who had been home in Canada enjoying a bottle of fine wine, back to the actual invitations that had been given to Lynn Audrey and her daughter, Lynn Pearl. Only then did her mother understand. Cinder had made her out to be an idiot. That had been the last straw for Pearl's friends. Traitors, Mei Jing had called them, accusing Pearl and her mother of helping the cyborg and putting Kai in danger. Furious, Pearl had stormed out, screaming that they could believe whatever they wanted for all she cared. She was the victim in all of this, and she didn't need so-called friends to throw these accusations at her. She had enough to deal with as it was. She'd expected them to chase after her, apologies in tow. They didn't. She walked all the way home with her fists clenched at her sides. Cinder. This was all Cinder's fault. Ever since Peony. No, ever since their dad had caught the plague and had been taken away from her. Everything was Cinder's fault. Karim Jeu their neighbor in 1816, didn't move aside as Pearl barreled past. Her shoulder smacked the woman against the wall, and Pearl paused long enough to glare at her. Was the old hog turning blind now as well as lazy? But she was met with a haughty snort. This reaction, too, was one Pearl had seen too often since the ball. Who was this woman to look down on Pearl and her mother? She was nothing but an old widow whose husband had died from a love of drink, and who now sat in her garbage-smelling apartment with a sad collection of ceramic monkeys. And she thought she was better than Pearl? The whole world had turned against her. So sorry, Pearl said through her teeth, stomping ahead to her own apartment. The door was opened slightly, but Pearl didn't give it any thought, until she shoved it open and banged it against the wall. She froze. The living room had been torn apart, even worse than when her mother had been searching for those stupid invitations. The pictures and plaques had all been shoved off the fireplace mantle. The brand new net screen was lying face down on the floor, and the urn containing Peony's ashes. Pearl's stomach plummeted. The door came back to hit her shoulder. Mom? she said, darting across the hall. She froze. A scream crawled up her throat, but died in a petrified squeak.
He was leaning against the living room's far wall. Though he had the form of a man, he stood with hunched shoulders and enormous clawed hands. His face had been disfigured into a snout with teeth that jutted between his lips and dark, glassy eyes sunk back in his face. Pearl whimpered. Instinct prompted her to take a step back, though instinct also told her it was useless. A hundred horrific stories, from news feeds to whispered gossip, filled her head. The killings were random, people said. The lunar monsters could be anywhere, at any time. No one could discern any pattern or logic to their strikes. They might swarm a crowded office building one day and kill every soul on the ninth floor, but leave the rest alone. They might kill one child asleep in their bed, but not their brother across the room. They might dismember a man as he dashed from a hover to his front door, then ring the doorbell so a loved one would find him still bleeding on the step. The terror of it was in the randomness, the brutality and the senseless way they chose their victims, while leaving so many witnesses to spread the fear. No one was safe. No one was ever safe. But Pearl never thought they would come here, to their inconsequential apartment in such a crowded city. And, and the war was in ceasefire. There hadn't been any attacks in days. Why now? Why her? A whine squeezed through her throat. The creature smirked, and she realized his jaw had been working when she'd come in. Like he'd been helping himself to a snack. Mom. Sobbing, she turned to run. The door slammed shut. A second creature blocked her way. Pearl collapsed to her knees, sobbing and shaking. Please, please. You sure we can't eat her? Said the one by the door, his words barely discernible beneath a gruff, raspy tone. He grabbed Pearl's arms and hauled her back to her feet. She screamed and tried to cower away, but his grip was merciless. He peeled the arm away from her body, extending it so he could get a good view of her forearm. Just a taste. She looks so sweet. Yet smells so sour, said the other. Pearl, through her hysteria, smelled it too. There was warm dampness between her legs. She wailed, and her legs gave out again, leaving her to dangle from the monster's hold. Mistress said to bring them unharmed. You want to take a nibble? Go ahead. Her wrath, your head. The one holding Pearl pressed his wet nose against her elbow and sniffed longingly. Then he let the arm fall and scooped Pearl over one shoulder. Not worth it, he said with a growl. I agree, the second beast came closer and pinched Pearl's face in his massive, hairy hand. But- Maybe we'll get to sample her when they're done. Chapter 35 There's the guardhouse, said Thorn, crouched in an alleyway between Iko and Wolf. For the hundredth time since they'd left Maha's house, he'd checked his pocket for the cylinder containing Cress's message. I had higher expectations, said Iko. Just like everything in this sector, the guardhouse was drab and covered in dust. It was also made of stone and lacking windows, 
which made it one of the more impenetrable buildings Thorne had seen. One uniformed guard stood watch at the door, a rifle laid across his arms, and a helmet and dust mask obscuring his face. Inside would be weaponry, dome maintenance equipment, a cell to hold lawbreakers before sending them to trial in Artemisia, and a small control center for accessing the dome's power grid and security system. Most important, this was where the receiver transmitter was housed that connected this sector to the government-run broadcasting network. How much time do we have? He asked. Estimated two minutes, 14 seconds until the next patrol guard comes into view, said Iko. Wolf, you're up. There was a flash of razor-sharp teeth before Wolf straightened and strolled out from the alley. Thorn and Iko ducked out of sight. A harsh voice ordered, Stop and identify yourself. Special Operative Alpha Kessley, I'm here on orders from Thaumaturge JL to check your weapons inventory. Your special op? What are you doing out? A gasp was followed by a short scuffle and thump. Thorn braced himself for the blare of a gunshot, but it never came. When silence reigned, he and Iko peered around the corner again. Wolf was already dragging the guard's unconscious form to the door and holding his fingertips against the screen. Thorn and Iko rushed to join him just as the door popped open. They dragged the guard inside. The interior of the guardhouse wasn't much of an improvement over the exterior. Slightly less dusty, but still dim and uncomfortable. In this main room, a large desk took up most of the space, separating them from two barred doors in the back wall. Thorn wasted no time in ripping off the itchy linen shirt he'd been wearing to fit in with the miners. Squatting beside the guard, he started unbuttoning the uniform's shirt. Though the guard was a bit stockier than he was, it looked like it would fit. I don't suppose you need help with that, Aiko said, sounding too hopeful as she watched Thorn work the guard's limp arms out of his sleeves. Thorn paused to glare at her and, remembering the cylinder, dug it out and pressed it into her fist. You get to work. Aiko gave him a quick salute and threw herself behind the desk. Soon, Thorn could hear her light-hearted humming as she found the universal port and inserted the cylinder. A screen pinged, and Iko proclaimed proudly, Code word, Captain is King! Thorn's lips twitched as he tugged the guard's shirt over his head. It worked! I'm in! said Iko. Uploading the program now! Wolf helped Thorn tie on the awkward shoulder armor. Just about done, and that's it. Selecting sectors to receive altered programming and uploading Cinder's video into the holding queue. Wow, Chris couldn't have made this any easier. Thorn grunted, not wanting to hear how great of a job Cress had done in helping them from afar. He wished she would have just sent herself. He dropped the dusk mask over his face to hide his grimace and wedged his feet into the guard's boots. He raised questionable eyebrows at Wolf. Wolf nodded. Passable. Give me at least four more minutes, said Iko. Got it. Two knocks means trouble. Three means coast is clear. Thorn grabbed the guard's rifle. He heard Wolf cracking his knuckles as he slipped back through the door to take up the guard's post. The grim-faced, shoulders-back posture came easily, and he was glad that, for once, his military training was coming in handy. 
He counted off six seconds before the guard patrolling this portion of the dome came into view. He was strolling past Thorn with his gun held over his shoulder, searching for errant civilians or laborers who should have been working. If the guard looked at him, Thorn didn't know it. He kept his own gaze pinned to the horizon, stoic and serious. The guard passed by. Behind the dust mask, Thorn smirked. Cinder wished she had more floor space in which to pace. Her nerves were a wreck as she waited to hear from Iko. Are you all right? Scarlet asked, sitting cross-legged on the rocking chair. She was fidgety too, toying with the drawstring of her freshly cleaned hoodie. I'm fine, Cinder lied. The truth was that she was as tense as a coiled spring, but she didn't want to talk about it. They'd already talked their strategy to death. Everything that could go right, everything that could go wrong. The people would answer her call or they wouldn't. Either way, she was about to show Lavana her hand. In the kitchen, Princess Winter was humming an unfamiliar song. She'd hardly stopped moving since her arrival the evening before. She dusted, swept, beat rugs, reorganized cabinets, and folded laundry, and done it all with the grace of a butterfly. All her work was making Cinder feel like a bad house guest. Cinder wasn't sure what to make of the princess. She both admired and questioned Winter's decision to not use her glamour. Life had been simpler before Cinder had used her own gift. And she'd too often been terrified to think she was becoming more and more like Levana. But at the same time, now that she had her gift, she couldn't imagine giving it up, especially seeing the toll it was taking on the princess's sanity. But to write off the princess as merely crazy didn't feel right either. She was quirky and strange and ridiculously charismatic. She also seemed to honestly care about the people around her, and she showed glimpses of intelligence that would have been easy to overlook. While she exuded humbleness, Cinder didn't think she was as ignorant of her own charms as she pretended to be. She wished she could remember her from when they were children, but all her memories consisted of flames and burning coals and seared flesh. There was nothing about a friend, a cousin. It had never even occurred to her she might have such a connection from her brief life on Luna. She'd assumed everyone in the palace would be her enemy. A calm popped up on her retina display. Cinder froze, read it, and released a heavy breath. They're in position. The video is set to play one minute following the end of the workday announcement across all outer sectors. Thorn is standing watch. No alarms raised. Yet. Cinder placed a hand over her knotted stomach. This was the moment all her preparations had been for. A thousand horrors clouded her mind. That they wouldn't believe her. That they wouldn't follow her. That they wouldn't want her revolution. As far as she could tell, this would be the first time Luna's outer sectors would be exposed to a message that wasn't crown-sanctioned propaganda or fear-mongering. Every bit of media they had came from the crown. From public executions that villainized anyone who dared criticize the queen, to documentaries on the royal family's generosity and compassion. Sectors could be singled out for individual broadcasts or all set to receive one message at once, although Cinder suspected the queen rarely did mass communications.
Rather, the rich communities of Artemisia might see coverage on the most elite parties of the season, while laborers in the outer sectors saw reports on food shortages and reduced rations. Without any way to communicate between themselves, though, how were they to know any different? Cinder was about to hijack Levana's most valuable brainwashing tool, more powerful even than her glamour. For the first time, the people in the outer sectors would hear a message of truth and empowerment. For the first time, they would be united, she hoped. A familiar chime blared outside, followed by Luna's anthem, and the woman's polite voice sending the workers home from the workday. Cinder wrapped her arms around herself, squeezing tight in an effort to keep from dissolving. That's it, she said, looking at Scarlet. They had discussed at length whether or not Cinder should risk being out in the sector when her message played. Her companions had all encouraged her to wait and let the video do its job without putting herself at risk. But she knew in that moment that waiting wasn't an option. She had to be there to see their reaction in this sector at least, if she couldn't see the reactions anywhere else. Scarlet's lips turned down. You're going out there, aren't you? I have to. Scarlet rolled her eyes, though she didn't look surprised. She stood and glanced toward the kitchen, where Winter's humming had become dramatic and overwrought. Winter? The princess appeared a moment later, her hands covered in wall putty. Scarlet settled her hands on her hips. What are you doing? Patching up the house, said Winter, as if it were obvious. So it won't fall apart. Right. Well, good job. Cinder and I are going to watch the video. If anyone comes to the house, hide, don't leave, and try not to do anything crazy. Winter winked. I shall be a vestibule of unhampered sanity. With an exasperated shake of her head, Scarlet turned back to Cinder. She'll be all right. Let's go. The clock in Cinder's head was counting down the minutes, and she and Scarlet had barely left the house when the dome darkened overhead. In the distance, she could see the first laborers heading home from the factories. They all paused and looked up, waiting to hear whatever bad news the queen had for them now. A series of building-sized squares flickered across the surface of the dome and sharpened into one image, duplicated a dozen times in every direction. Cinder's face plastered half a dozen times across the sky. Cinder grimaced at the sight. When they had recorded the video aboard the Rampion, she felt bold and resolute. She hadn't bothered to dress up, preferring the people to see her as she was. In the video, she was wearing the same military-issued T-shirt and cargo pants she'd found aboard the Rampion ages ago. Her hair was in the same ponytail she always wore it in. Her arms were crossed over her chest, her cyborg hand on full display. She looked nothing at all like her regal, glamorous, powerful aunt. Cinder, Scarlet hissed, shouldn't you be using your glamour? She started and called up the glamour of the plain teenage girl she'd used during the trek from Artemisia. It would keep anyone in the sector from recognizing her, at least, though it wouldn't protect her from camera footage. She hoped Lavana would have a lot of footage to be examining after this. Her likeness in the sky began to speak. 
Citizens of Luna, I ask that you stop what you're doing to listen to this message. My name is Celine Blackburn. I am the daughter of the late Queen Channery, niece to Princess Lavana, and the rightful heir to Luna's throne. She had practiced the words a thousand times, and Cinder was relieved she didn't sound like a complete idiot saying them. You were told that I died 13 years ago in a nursery fire. But the truth is that my aunt, Lavana did try to kill me. But I was rescued and taken to Earth. There, I have been raised and protected in preparation for the time when I would return to Luna and reclaim my birthright. In my absence, Lavana has enslaved you. She takes your sons and turns them into monsters. She takes your shell infants and slaughters them. She lets you go hungry while the people in Artemisia gorge themselves on rich foods and delicacies. Her expression turned fierce. But Levana's rule is coming to an end. I have returned, and I am here to take back what is mine. Chills skittered down Cinder's arms at hearing her own voice sound so capable so confident, so worthy. Soon, the video continued, Lavana is going to marry Emperor Kaito of Earth and be crowned the Empress of the Earthen Commonwealth, an honor that could not be given to anyone less deserving. I refuse to allow Lavana to extend her tyranny. I will not stand aside while my aunt enslaves and abuses my people here on Luna and wages a war across Earth. Which is why, before an earthen crown can be placed on Lavana's head, I will bring an army to the gates of Artemisia. Above her, her smile turns devious and unflinching. I ask that you, citizens of Luna, be that army. You have the power to fight against Lavana and the people that oppress you. Beginning now, tonight, I urge you to join me in rebelling against this regime. No longer will we obey her curfews or forego our rights to meet and talk and be heard. No longer will we give up our children to become her disposable guards and soldiers. No longer will we slave away growing food and raising wildlife only to see it shipped off to Artemisia while our children starve around us. No longer will we build weapons for Lavana's war. Instead, we will take them for ourselves, for our war. Become my army. Stand up and reclaim your homes from the guards who abuse and terrorize you. Send a message to Lavana that you will no longer be controlled by fear and manipulation. And upon the commencement of the royal coronation, I ask that all able-bodied citizens join me in a march against Artemisia and the Queen's Palace. Together, we will guarantee a better future for Luna. A future without oppression. A future in which any lunar, no matter the sector they live in or the family they were born to, can achieve their ambitions and live without fear of unjust persecution or a lifetime of slavery. I understand that I am asking you to risk your lives. 
Lavana's thaumaturges are powerful. Her guards are skilled. Her soldiers are brutal. But if we join together, we can be invincible. They can't control us all. With the people united into one army, we will surround the capital city and overthrow the imposter who sits on my throne. Help me. Fight for me. And I will be the first ruler in the history of Luna who will also fight for you. The video focused on Cinder's indomitable expression for a heartbeat and cut out. Chapter 36 Wow, Scarlet whispered. Good speech. Cinder's heart was thundering. Thanks. Kai wrote most of it. She peered down the empty row of houses. The few people she had spotted before were still milling around, staring up at the dome. More miners and factory workers should have returned by now, but the streets stayed empty. The dome was a vacuum of silence. It should have frightened her, knowing that she had made her first move. She had been running for so long. Lavana had kept her on the defensive since the moment she'd seen her at the Commonwealth Ball. No more. She felt energized, ready. Far from looking like a fool in the video, she had sounded like a queen. She sounded like a revolutionary. She sounded like she could actually pull this off. Come on, said Scarlet, marching ahead. Let's go see what's happening. Cinder hurried after her. They heard shouting coming from the central square, and the distant citizens were drifting toward the residential streets, though they frequently paused to look back. As Cinder and Scarlet got closer, the shouting turned into barking orders. The sector guards had shoved their way into the loitering crowd, gripping long, slender clubs in their fists. Move along, a guard shouted. All but his eyes were concealed beneath the helmet and face mask. Four minutes to curfew. Loitering is strictly prohibited, and no video is changing that. Cinder and Scarlet ducked behind a delivery cart. The citizens were clustered into small groups, their hair and uniforms covered in regolith dust. A few had their sleeves rolled up, revealing the RM9 tattoos on their forearms. Most lowered their eyes when the guards approached them, recoiling at the prospect of those clubs being turned on them. But few seemed to be leaving. One guard grabbed a man by his elbow and shoved him away from the bubbling fountain at the dome's center. Get along, all of you. Don't make us file a report of misconduct. Gazes shifted between the tired workers. The crowd was thinning, their tired shoulders drooping as they dispersed. Groups dissolved without even an angry word shouted back at the guards. Cinder's heart squeezed. They weren't fighting. They weren't defending themselves. They were cowed by their oppressors every bit as much as before. Disappointment swarmed over her, and she stumbled, slouching against the cart. Had she not been persuasive enough? Had she failed to convey how important it was that they all stand up, unified and resolute? Had she failed? 
Scarlet laid a hand on her shoulder. It's only one sector, she said. Don't be discouraged. We don't know what else is happening out there. Though her words were kind, Cinder could see her frustration mirrored on Scarlet. It might be true. They didn't know what was happening in the rest of the sectors, and they had no way of knowing. What she saw here, though, did little to give her confidence. Don't touch me, a man yelled. Cinder glanced around the cart. A guard was staring down a skinny man with sickly pale skin. Despite the gaunt bent to his body, the man stood before the guard with clenched fists. I will not return to my house in recognition of curfew, he said. Threaten to report me all you like. After a video like that, the queen and her minions are going to have their hands full, rounding up people guilty of much bigger crimes than staying out a few extra minutes. Two other guards stopped ushering the people away and moved toward the man. Their gloved hands tightened on their clubs. The remaining workers stopped to watch. Curious, wary, but also, Cinder thought, angry. The first guard loomed over the man. His voice was muffled behind the mask, but his arrogance was clear. Our laws are for the protection of all people, and no one will be exempt from them. I suggest you go home before I'm forced to make an example of you. I'm perfectly capable of making an example of myself, the man snarled at the guards that were converging around him, then at the people who had hesitated at the edges of the square. Don't you get it? If the other sector saw that video too, the guard wrapped his free hand around the back of the man's neck and shoved him down, forcing the man onto his knees. His words were cut off with a strangled grunt. The guard raised his club. Cinder pressed a hand over her mouth. She reached out with her gift, but she was too far away to stop it, too far to control him. The other two guards joined in, their clubs falling onto the man's head, back, shoulders. He fell onto his side and covered his face, screaming from the force of the blows, but they wouldn't relent. Cinder gritted her teeth and took a step into the road, but another voice cut through the man's cries before she could speak. Stop, a woman screamed. She shoved her way through the crowd. One of the guards did stop. No, he froze. The other two hesitated, seeing their companion with his club held halfway through a swing. The woman's face was contorted in concentration. Unlawful use of manipulation, bellowed another guard. He grabbed the woman and pulled her arms behind her back. Before he could bind them, though, another miner had stepped forward, an elderly man with his back bent under years of work. His gaze was sharp, though, as he raised one hand. The guard's body turned to stone. Another civilian stepped forward, then another, their expressions made of grim determination. One by one, the guards dropped their clubs. One by one, their bodies were claimed by the people. A young boy rushed toward the man who had been beaten. He lay limp on the ground, groaning in pain. A woman, who had stepped forward first, snarled at the guards. I don't know if that girl was Princess Celine or not, but I do know she's right. This might be our only chance to stand together, and I, for one, refuse to be afraid of you anymore. Her face was strained, full of resentment. As Cinder watched, the guard she was controlling reached for the knife at his belt and lifted it, 
pressing the blade against his own throat. Horror cascaded over her like ice water. No! Cinder screamed. She ran forward, releasing the glamour of the plain girl. Don't! Don't kill them! Barreling into the center of the crowd, Cinder held her hands toward the gathered civilians. Her pulse was racing. She was met first with rage. The remnants of years of tyranny and yearning for revenge turned to disgust at her interruption. But then, slowly, there was recognition, matched with confusion. I understand these men have been the queen's weapons. They have abused and degraded you and your families. But they are not your enemies. Many guards were removed from their loved ones and forced into the queen's employment against their will. Now, I don't know about these guards specifically, but killing them without offering a fair trial or showing any mercy will only further the cycle of distrust. She met the eyes of the woman who held the guard and his knife in thrall. Don't become like the queen and her court. Don't kill them. We'll take them prisoner until further notice. We might still find a use for them. The guard's arm began to lower, removing the knife's imminent threat. He was watching Cinder, though, not the woman. Maybe he was relieved that she'd intervened. Maybe he was embarrassed at his lack of power. Maybe he was plotting to kill all these rebellious citizens the moment he had a chance. It occurred to her that this same scenario could be playing out in countless other sectors, without her there to stop it. She wanted the people to defend themselves from Lavana's regime, but she hadn't considered how she might also be sentencing thousands of guards to death. She tried to tamp down the sting of guilt, telling herself this was war now, and wars came with casualties. But it didn't make her feel much better. She approached the fountain and stepped up onto the edge. The water sprayed against her calves. The crowd around her had grown and was still growing, People who had wandered off to their residences returned in force, drawn by the commotion and the spreading whispers of rebellion. With the guards subdued, their heads were lifted. She imagined hundreds of thousands, even millions of lunars gathering together like this, daring to envision a new regime. Then a man's voice shouted. It's a trick. This is Lavana testing us. She'll slaughter us all for this. The crowd rustled made nervous by the accusation. Their eyes roved over Cinder's face, her clothes, the metal hand she wasn't hiding. She felt like she was at the ball again, the center of unwanted attention, forging ahead with single-minded resolve and the knowledge that she couldn't turn back now, even if she wanted to. This isn't a trick, she said, loud enough that her words echoed off the nearest factory walls. And it isn't a test. I am Princess Celine, and the video you just saw was broadcast to almost every sector on Luna. I am organizing a rebellion that will span the entire surface of Luna, starting here. Will you join me? She hoped to be met with cheers, but uncomfortable silence greeted her instead. The elderly man she'd seen before cocked his head. But... You're only a kid. She glared at him, indignant. But before she could speak, a familiar face emerged in the crowd. Maha came to stand before her. 
Despite her small stature, she carried every ounce of Wolf's fearlessness in her stance. Didn't you hear the video? Our true queen has returned. Will we cower in fear and ignore this one chance we have to make a better life for ourselves? The old man gestured toward the sky. One pretty speech will not make for an organized rebellion. We have no training and no weapons. We have no time to prepare. What do you expect us to do? March into Artemisia with shovels and pickaxes? We'll be slaughtered. It was clear from the scattered frowns and bobbing heads that he wasn't alone in his thoughts. What we lack in training and time, said Maha, we'll make up for it numbers and determination, just like Celine said. Numbers and determination? You'll take two steps into Artemisia, and her thaumaturges will have you cutting open your own throats before you even see the palace. They can't brainwash all of us, someone yelled from the crowd. Exactly, agreed Maha, which is why we have to do this now, when all of Luna can move forward together. How do we even know the other sectors will fight, said the man. Are we expected to risk our lives for some fantasy? Yes, Maha screamed. Yes, I will risk my life for this fantasy. Lavana took both of my sons away from me, and I could do nothing to protect them. I couldn't stand up to her, even though it killed me to let them go. I will not waste this chance now. Cinder could tell her words meant something to the gathered civilians. Eyes dropped to the ground. A handful of children, covered in the same dust as everyone else, were pulled into the shelter of their parents' arms. The man's face tightened. I have wished for change my whole life, which is precisely how I know it's not going to be that simple. Lavana may not be able to send manpower into every sector if we all riot at once, but what will stop her from halting the supply trains? She can starve us into submission. Our rations are already too low as it is. You're right, said Cinder. She could cut your rations and halt the supply trains. But not if we control the maglev system. Don't you see? The only way this can work is if we all band together, if we refuse to accept the rules Lavana has forced on us. She caught sight of Scarlet in the crowd. Then, Iko too with Wolf and Thorn. Thorn was wearing a guard uniform, but had taken off the helmet and face mask. She hoped his open grin would be enough to halt anyone's misplaced hatred. Their presence bolstered her. She tried to meet the eyes of as many citizens as she could. I have no doubt the other sectors are dealing with the same fears you have. I suggest we select volunteers to act as runners to your neighboring sectors, We'll tell them that I'm here and that everything I said on the video is true. I will be marching into Artemisia, and I will reclaim my birthright. And I will be with you, said Maha Kesley. I believe you are our true queen, and we owe you our allegiance on that alone. But as a mother, reunited with her son, I owe you so much more. Cinder smiled at her grateful. 
Maha returned it. Then, she dropped to one knee and bowed her head. Cinder tensed. Oh, Maha, you don't have to. She trailed off as, all around her, the crowd started to follow suit. The change was gradual at first, but spread like ripples in a pond. Her friends alone stayed standing, and Cinder was grateful for their lack of reverence. Her fears started to melt away. She didn't know if her video had persuaded every civilian to join her cause, and maybe not even most of them. But the sight before her was proof that her revolution had begun. Chapter 37 Kai stood with his arms crossed, glaring at the window of his lavish guest suite, but seeing nothing of the beautiful lake or city below. He had not managed to appreciate any of the luxuries of his fine prison, despite the suite being larger than most houses in the Commonwealth. Lavana was feigning respect, giving him accommodations complete with an enormous bedroom and closet, two sitting parlors, an office, and a washroom that, at first glance, had seemed as though it had an actual pool in it, before Kai realized it was the bathtub. Breathtaking to be sure, it was even more luxurious than the guest suites in New Beijing Palace, though Kai and his ancestors had prided themselves on how they welcomed and treated their diplomatic guests. The effect was ruined, however, by the fact that the double doors leading onto his outdoor balcony remained locked, and lunar guards were posted outside his chambers, day and night. He had fantasized about breaking one of the windows and trying to scale down the wall of the palace. It's probably what Cinder would have done. But what was the point? Even if he avoided breaking his neck, he had nowhere to go. Though it pained him to think it, his place was here, beside Lavana, doing his best to keep her occupied with wedding and coronation rubbish. Which was not going well, given that he hadn't seen Lavana or any of her cohorts since they'd locked him in here after the ambush in the docks. The only visitors he'd had were mute servants bringing him overflowing platters of extravagant food that went largely untouched. With an exasperated growl, he started pacing again, sure he would wear a hole through this stone floor before this ordeal was over. He had succeeded in getting Cinder and the others to Luna, which had been his primary role in their planning. But it hadn't gone smoothly, and he was going mad not knowing what had happened. Had they gotten away? Was anyone hurt? Even without a decom link, he would have been tempted to send a comm to Iko or Cinder just to know what was happening. But Lavana had confiscated his port screen. It was maddening, but given the risk of a comm being traced, possibly for the best. His anxiety would have been quelled if he could have moved forward with his other objectives. In addition to distracting Lavana, he had also been tasked with gathering information about Scarlet Benoit. But he could learn nothing nothing while trapped in here. It was like being stuck on the rampion again, but a hundred times worse. A bell echoed through his suite. He bolted through the main parlor and yanked open the door. A liveried servant stood on the other side, a boy a few years younger than Kai. He was flanked by four lunar guards. I am not a prisoner, Kai started, wedging his foot into the door in case it was slammed shut 
as it had been countless times before. The servant stiffened. I am the emperor of the Eastern Commonwealth, not some common criminal, and I will be treated with diplomatic respect. I have the right to hold counsel with my advisor and cabinet officials, and I demand to hear Queen Lavana's reasons for detaining us in this manner. The servant's mouth worked, speechless for a moment, before he stammered. I have been summoned to escort you to Her Majesty. Kai blinked, momentarily baffled, but he quickly gathered himself. It's about time. Take me to her, immediately. The servant bowed and stepped back into the corridor. Kai was marched through the palace feeling even more like a prisoner, with the guards spread out at his back, though no one touched him. He did his best to observe the palace layout, picking out memorable landmarks when he could. An interesting sculpture, an intricate tapestry. Over a sky bridge and down a long, narrow corridor where holographic portraits were lined up like a gauntlet. His feet stumbled once he saw the last holograph. He had to look twice to be sure he wasn't losing his mind. The final holograph was a woman who looked, at first glance, just like Cinder. His heart pounded, but as the holograph turned toward him, he realized his mistake. This was a mature version of Cinder, with flirtatious eyes and a vixen smile. Her cheekbones were more pronounced, her nose a bit narrower. In fact, the real similarities lay not between this woman and the cinder he knew, but between her and the cinder he'd seen at the base of the ballroom steps. He checked the plaque, confirming his suspicions. Queen Channery Blackburn. Cinder's unintentional glamour, painfully beautiful as it had been, looked so much like her mother. Your Majesty, he startled and whipped his attention away. He said nothing to the servant as he left the swaying holograph behind. He had expected to be taken to the throne room, but as they walked through an iron-grated door and into a far less luxurious hallway, he grew suspicious. On his left, they passed an elaborate vault door. What's in there? Expecting to be ignored, he was surprised when the servant answered, The crown jewels and regalia. The crown jewels. In New Beijing, they stored priceless artifacts and heirlooms in one of the most secure underground vaults. There, they kept gemstones the size of eggs, millennia-old gold-plated swords, even the crowns of the emperor and empress when they weren't in use. It was clear that this wing was not open for general palace tours. Where were they taking him? They turned another corner and Kai was ushered through a door into some sort of computer control center full of Invisi screens and holograph nodes. Maps and surveillance videos were flickering on every wall, and there were at least 30 men and women analyzing the abundance of feeds and compiling the ongoing data. Before he could begin to make sense of what they were doing, he was shoved through a door in an adjacent room. The door was shut, locking him behind soundproof glass. His gaze swept around the new space, a backdrop on one wall showed the city of Artemisia and Earth off the horizon. Two elaborate thrones sat before it. The rest of the room was full of enormous standing lights and recording equipment. It reminded him of the media room in New Beijing Palace, but without any seats to set up for journalists. Lavana stood behind one of the thrones. Her hands rested on its back. 
She was dressed in a shimmering black gown hung with a silver sash. A brooch on the sash had a delicate gold filigree and rhinestones that read, Princess Winter, though gone, never forgotten. Kai's lips curled in disgust. This bit of gossip, at least, had reached him in his captivity. Princess Winter had been murdered. Some were saying it was by a guard. Some were saying a jealous lover. But after seeing the way Lavanna had snarled at her stepdaughter, Thaumaturge Amory stood by the door, along with the red-haired captain of the guard. An unfamiliar man was fiddling with one of the lights. Though Lavanna's mouth was smiling, her eyes were vicious. Something had happened. Kai planted his feet and shoved his hands into his pockets, hoping to come across as composed but formidable. Hello, my sweet, he drawled, recalling the sycophantic endearments she'd mentioned in the ports. Lavana gave him a withering look, which spoke volumes. If she wasn't willing to fake amusement, then something had gone horribly wrong. Which he hoped meant something had gone horribly right. I was promised that I would be treated as a diplomatic guest, he said. I wish to hold counsel with Khan Torin and the rest of the Earthen delegates, and to be allowed access to roam the palace and city. We are not your prisoners. Unfortunately, I am not taking demands today. Lavana's long nails dug into the back of her false throne. You are, however, going to help me with a little project. Are we ready? The man was holding up pieces of paper in varying tones of white. One more moment, my queen. Kai raised an eyebrow. I'm not helping you with anything until you grant my requests and answer my questions. My dear groom-to-be, you gave up your rights to diplomatic courtesy when you brought those criminals into my home. Sit down. Kai experienced a heartbeat's worth of defiance before his legs moved of their own accord and he collapsed into one of the thrones. He glared at the queen. I'm told, he pressed, that you took an earthen prisoner during a time of ceasefire, a citizen of the European Federation by the name of Scarlet Benoit. I demand to know if there is any truth to these rumors and where the girl is now. Lavana started to laugh. I assure you, there is no earthen prisoner by that name here. Her laughter set Kai's teeth on edge, and her statement did nothing to convince him. Was Lavana implying that Scarlet was dead? Or no longer in the palace? Or no longer in Artemisia at all? Lavana grabbed a veil from a mannequin's head and draped it over herself. Amory stepped forward and settled the queen's crown on her head. When Lavana turned back, her glamour was no longer visible. Having grown accustomed to her beautiful face, Kai had forgotten how this blank veil had filled him with horror for so long. What are we doing here? Kai asked. Filming a little video, came Lavana's voice. There has been some confusion in the outer sectors of late, and I thought it pertinent to remind the people of their true loyalties and all the great things you and I are going to accomplish once we are husband and wife. He studied her, but could see little beneath the veil. She was telling him so little, but she was telling him enough. 
Cinder's video had played. Lavana was on the defensive. It had to be. What do you expect me to say? Lavana clicked her teeth and took the throne beside him. Nothing at all, darling. I will do the talking for you. Dismay kicked behind his sternum. He tried to jolt to his feet, but his legs had become stone. He wrapped his hands around the chair's arms, digging his nails into the polished wood. I don't think his tongue halted. The technician counted down on his fingers, and a light glowed on the cameras before him. Kai's body relaxed. His hands released the chair's arms and settled in his lap. His posture was poised, but natural. His gaze soft. He was smiling as he looked into the camera's lens. On the inside, however, he was furious. He was screaming and threatening Lavana with every law regarding intergalactic policies he could think of. None of it mattered. His tirade was apparent to no one but himself. My good people, said Lavana, it has come to my attention that you have been accosted by an imposter, claiming to be our beloved Princess Selene, who was tragically lost to us 13 years ago. It has distressed me greatly that this girl, whose real name is Lynn Cinder, and who is a wanted criminal both on Luna and on Earth, has dared to take advantage of this painful episode in our history, particularly when we are still in mourning over the death of my stepdaughter. It breaks my heart to inform you that this girl's claims are nothing but lies meant to confuse you and manipulate you into joining her, even when your good sense, when not so manipulated, would refuse to participate. She gestured to Kai. I wish to introduce you all to my future husband, his imperial majesty, Emperor Kaito of Earthen's Eastern Commonwealth. He has a reputation of being a most fair and compassionate ruler, and I have no doubt he will be a great king to us as well. Together, we will unite our countries with a union built on admiration and mutual respect. Inside, Kai gagged. Outside, he turned love-struck eyes toward his bride. You may not know, Lavana continued, that his majesty has had many personal dealings with Lincinder, this criminal who is masquerading as her highness, Princess Selene. I wanted you to hear his opinion of the girl, so you might make decisions based on facts and not emotional responses. Please, grace him with your full attention. Kai faced the camera again, and the words that came out of his mouth would later have him scrubbing his own tongue. Citizens of Luna, it is my honor to address you as your future king, and my greatest sadness that my introduction to you must be on such tumultuous grounds. As your queen has stated, I have had many interactions with Lynn Cinder, and I know with certainty she is not what she claims to be. The truth is that she is a violent criminal, responsible for countless thefts and murders on planet Earth. After developing an obsession with me, she even attempted to assassinate my beloved bride-to-be, your queen, during our annual peace festival in New Beijing. 
When that attempt failed, she went so far as to kidnap me on the day that had been intended as our wedding. Proceeding to hold me hostage against my will and under inhumane conditions until I promised to give up on this union between Earth and Luna and agree to marry her instead. It is only thanks to Luna's brave soldiers and Her Majesty's indomitable spirit that I was safely released. Unfortunately, Lynn Cinder has not given up. She continues to live a fantasy in which she is Princess Selene, returned from the dead, in hopes that she might win my affection. Her instability and recklessness have made her a dangerous felon and a threat, not only to my safety, but to the well-being of all who come in contact with her. I would urge you all, if you see Lynn Cinder, to report her to officials immediately. Do not speak to her. Do not approach her. As your future king, I am now most concerned with your safety. And it is my hope that Lynn Cinder will be found and brought to Artemisia, where she can be met with the justice her crimes deserve. By the time he had finished speaking, Kai felt like he would have ripped out his own tongue if given the chance. Lavana started again. Of course, if ever there was found to be any truth to the rumors that my dear niece Celine had survived all those years ago, I would joyfully welcome her into my heart and home and place Luna's crown myself upon her head. Sadly, it is not to be. Celine lies with the stars, and I alone must maintain the security and livelihoods of our people. I know times are difficult. It is with great sadness that I watch our food production diminish year after year, and our limited resources fail to meet the needs of our growing populace, which is why it has been the topmost priority of my regime to secure this alliance with Earth, so that our future might be brighter and our people taken care of for generations to come. This, my people, is the future that I alone can offer you. Not this cyborg, this imposter, this fraud. As her tone dipped toward resentment, Lavana paused and regathered herself. Her voice carried a smile again as she finished. I am your queen, and you are my people. It is my great privilege to guide us all into a bright new future. The technician stopped the recording, and Kai's body throbbed as control was returned to him. He bolted to his feet and rounded on Lavana. I am not a brainless instrument to be used for your propaganda. Lavana removed the crown and veil and passed them to Amory. Be calm, my beloved. You spoke so eloquently. No doubt the people were impressed. Cinder will know it was fake. She'll know you were controlling me. Lavana's eyes flashed. What do I care what Cinder thinks? Her opinion, like yours, means nothing. She snapped her fingers at the guard. I am finished with him. You may take him back. Chapter 38 
As soon as the emperor had been led away by the contingent of guards, Lavana swept out of the studio into the control room. Have that video edited and set to play in all sectors where the cyborg's message went out. Monitor those feeds carefully. I want hourly reports on how each broadcast is being received. What is the current status of the outer sectors? We are seeing minor upheavals in 31 sectors, said a woman. Mostly civilians have been refusing to respect curfew laws, and there have been some attacks on sector guards. A man added, We're also seeing an increase of thefts in two agricultural sectors. Laborers return to the fields and have been harvesting food rations for their own use. Guards have been incapacitated in both sectors. Lavana huffed. Send added security to all sectors showing signs of insurgence. We must quell this immediately. And find that cyborg! She stood watching the flicker of surveillance videos for a moment, though her thoughts were far away. As her blood boiled, she found herself back in New Beijing, watching the girl rush past her in that tawdry silver ball gown. She saw her trip on the ballroom steps and tumble down toward the gardens. Her hideous metal foot snapped off at the ankle, and the full force of her glamour surged over her, crackling like electricity, rolling off her body like heat waves in the desert. In her unpracticed state, the girl had done nothing more than call up an exaggeratedly beautiful version of herself, and, in so doing, she had turned herself into Channery, her mother, Lavana's tormentor. Lavana could still see her like a photograph imprinted forever in her memory. Hatred she had not felt in years surged through her veins. Fury sparked in her vision, white and blinding. Selene. She was meant to die 13 years ago, yet here she was, disastrously alive. And just as Lavana had feared back then, she would take everything from her. Everything that Lavana had worked so hard for. It made her sick. Why couldn't Celine have died easily, mercifully, the way she'd planned? When she had coaxed that young nanny into setting fire to the princess's playhouse, it should have ended it all. No niece, no princess, no future queen. But she'd been tricked. Celine was alive and attempting to take her throne from her. Her attention refocused on the screens. These are my people, she whispered. My blood and my soul. I am their queen. Amory appeared at her side. Of course you are, your majesty. The cyborg has no idea what it is to be queen. What choices one must live with. What sacrifices must be made. When she is gone... The people will recognize that you have always been the one to rightly sit upon our throne. When she is gone, Lavana repeated, grasping at the words. But how will I ever know that she is gone if I cannot find her? It was infuriating. She had known the cyborg was a threat from the moment she recognized her on Earth. But... For her to attempt to turn Lavana's citizens against her was a blow she couldn't fathom. The thought of their love turning to biased hatred stole the air from her lungs and left her feeling hollowed out to her core. 
that was the cyborg's plan, too. To turn as many people's minds against Levana as she could, knowing that large numbers would be her greatest advantage. Levana could control hundreds, perhaps thousands of citizens, when she had a need to do it. With her thaumaturges behind her, they could control entire sectors, entire cities. But even she had limits. She shook her head. It mattered not. The people would not revolt against her. The people loved her. She rubbed two fingers against her brow. What will I do? My queen, said Amory. Perhaps I can offer a bit of good news. Releasing her breath, she turned to the thaumaturge. Good news would be very welcome indeed. I received an interesting report from your laboratories this morning, but had not had a chance to share their discoveries in the wake of the cyborg's broadcast. However, it has been confirmed that we are capable of duplicating the mutated letamosis microbes that were recovered from the body of Dr. Sage Darnell on Earth, and that our immunity to the original disease has in fact been compromised by this mutation. It took Lavana a moment to change the direction of her thoughts. And the antidote? Still effective, though there is a much shorter window in which it can be used. Lavana tapped her fingers against her lower lip. That is interesting. Years ago, Lavana unleashed this plague on Earth, and she would soon embrace the results. Earth was weak and desperate, desperate to cure the plague, desperate to end the war. When she gave them the antidote, they would be unspeakably grateful to their new empress. She had never expected her lab-created disease to mutate in the wild, though. Now, no one was immune, not even her own people. What a strange, miraculous thing. Thank you, Amory. This could be the answer I've been seeking. If the people do not see their errors and come crawling back to my good graces, I may have to employ new means of persuasion. It would break my heart to see my people suffering, but that is one of those difficult decisions a queen finds herself making from time to time. Her heart fluttered as she imagined the people filling up the courtyard beyond the palace walls and kneeling before her, tears on their faces. They would worship her for having saved them. She would save them all with her goodness and charity. Oh, how they would adore her, their savior, their rightful queen. Your majesty, she pivoted toward the voice. A woman had stood up and was adjusting the invisi screen. I think I found something. Lavana shoved past Amory to get a better view. The screen showed the central square of an outer sector. Regolith mining, perhaps, judging by the dust that covered every surface, smudging even the camera lens. The fountain depicting her likeness could be seen in the footage, a thing of beauty in their drab world. The square was full of people, a rarity in itself. Her mandated curfew ensured that the people focused on their work and their rest without being tempted to converge with their neighbors during off-work hours. Is this live? she asked. No, my queen, this was filmed not long after the end of the workday. 
She hastened through the footage, and Lavana squinted to try to make sense of it. Guards, civilians, a just punishment, and then... Pause the video. The woman did, and Lavana found herself staring into the face that had haunted her for months. If there had been any doubt, the monstrous metal hand dispelled it. Where is this? Regolith Mining 9. Lavana's lips curled upward. The cyborg was hers. Amory, assemble a team for immediate deployment to the sector. Lynn Cinder is to be arrested and brought to me for a public trial and execution. Use whatever methods you see fit to detain her. Her vision bled with loathing as she stared at the screen. The haughty girl with her ignorant words and her proud displays. We are not to tolerate any sympathizing with her or her allies. This uprising must be brought to an end. Book Three Your stepmother will soon know you are here, warned the kindly dwarfs. Do not let anyone in. Chapter 39 Lavana's rebuttal video was playing for the third time that hour. Cinder was doing her best to ignore it, but every time Kai started speaking, the sound of his voice made her jump, only to be reminded all over again that he wasn't here. He was under Lavana's control, as Lavana had so deftly illustrated. From her spot around a work table on the third floor of a regolith storehouse, Cinder could see most of one of the screens embedded on the dome. It showed a contented Lavana and a peaceful Kai, so happy together. There was one moment when Kai turned to Lavana and smiled all dreamy-like that made Cinder's skin crawl. For the billionth time she wished Cress was with them, she would have known how to turn it off. Cinder turned away from the video to concentrate. She had no way of knowing how Lavana's message was being received across Luna. Just as she had no way of knowing how her video was being received, the best she could do was move forward. She was gathered among her allies. Iko, Thorn, Wolf, and Scarlet. Wolf's mother was there too, along with a handful of sector residents who had been nominated to represent the others. They had worked through the night, plotting and organizing, too energized to sleep. Two runners had returned that morning from neighboring mining sectors and were reporting good news. The guards had been restrained, their weaponry confiscated, and the people would join Cinder on her march to Artemisia. Additional messengers had taken on the dangerous assignment of traveling through the mines, lava tubes, and maglev tunnels to confirm the truth of Cinder's video and rally as many sectors as they could to the cause. It was a promising start. The rest of the sector residents had been sent home after Cinder encouraged them to get some rest. In truth, she needed space from their curiosity and awestruck whispers. Space to think. When they regathered, she would divide the people into teams and assign each team a task. Though some volunteers had already been put on watch guarding the maglev platforms, she would soon have to establish a rotation to make sure they stayed alert. Some groups would be tasked with gathering what food and medical supplies they could find. Another would watch the guardhouse. 
and still others would be sent to ransack the mines for potential weapons and tools. Wolf promised to spend time training any able-bodied citizens in basic combat techniques to commence that afternoon. She stared up at the holographic map of Luna, her brow drawn, as Wolf indicated what routes he thought they should take to the capital. Everyone agreed they should come at the city from as many directions as possible to force Lavana to divide her own defenses against them. We should avoid research and development, and also technical services, Wolf said, pointing out two sectors in Artemisia's near vicinity. Most people there will be Lavana supporters. RD1 seems easy enough to get around, Cinder spun the holograph for a better view. But TS1 and 2 are right in our path if we're going to hit these agricultural sectors on the way. Maybe we don't avoid them, said Thorne. Is there some way we can blockade the platforms under those sectors, trapping anyone inside? It would allow us safe passage through and also keep anyone from sneaking up behind us afterward and trapping us in these tunnels. Cinder tapped a finger against her lower lip. That might work, but what do we block them with? Doesn't this sector manufacture building materials? Asked Scarlet, gesturing to a sector labeled GC6, General Construction. Maybe they'll have something we can use. Cinder turned to one of the miners. Can I appoint you to look into that? He clapped a hand to his heart in a proud salute. Of course, your majesty. We can take some of the mining carts to transport the materials, too. Perfect. Trying not to feel awkward about the your majesty part, Cinder turned back to the group. Wolf stiffened, a small change that sent an alarm through Cinder. What is it? He started to shake his head, but stopped, his frown deepening. His piercing eyes turned toward the window. The screens on the dome had once again fallen silent. I thought I... I smelled something. Hair prickled on the back of Cinder's neck. If it had been anyone other than Wolf, she would have laughed. But his senses were uncanny, and his instincts hadn't led them astray yet. What sort of something, she asked. I can't place it. There are a lot of bodies here, a lot of scents, but there was something. His fists tightened. Someone is near, someone who was also on the rooftop in New Beijing. Cinder's heart thumped. Kai! But no, Wolf would have recognized Kai for sure. It had to be one of the royal guards who attacked them. Iko grabbed the port screen, a device that had stunned and awed the civilians, and shut off the holograph. A shrill scream echoed through the streets outside. Cinder ran for the window, pressing her body against the wall, ready to duck out of view. Thorn plastered himself to the wall beside her. You should hide, he whispered. So should you. Neither of them moved. She watched the scene below, trying to make sense of it as horror built inside her. Countless guards were marching through the streets, along with at least half a dozen thaumaturges that she could see. A white coat drew her attention, and her stomach sank. Thaumaturge Amory stood on the edge of the central fountain, right where Cinder had stood before. He carried himself like a prince with his beautiful face and proud stance. More reinforcements kept pouring in from the narrow streets that stretched out from the square like spokes on a wheel. 
far too many reinforcements to quell a simple uprising in a non-threatening mining sector. Cinder's gut nodded. They knew she was here. The guards were dragging the people out of their homes, corralling them into uniform lines around the fountain. She recognized the man who had been beaten by the guards, still bruised and limping. There was the old woman who had been stockpiling what she could of her meager rations for years, and who had already offered to give it up to those who would be fighting in Artemisia. And there was the 12-year-old boy who had trailed Iko around all morning with a swoony expression on his face. They're rounding up everyone in the sector, whispered Maha, peering out of the next window. No doubt, they'll search these buildings too. Her expression was fierce as she stepped back. You should all hide. The rest of us will give ourselves up. They might not search these upper floors if they think everyone is accounted for. Cinder gulped. They won't stop looking. Maha squeezed her hand. Then hide well. She wrapped Wolf in a tight embrace. He bent down to accept it, his knuckles going white as he held her. They heard the factory door bang open on the first floor. Cinder jumped. She wanted to grab Maha and force her to stay, but Maha extricated herself from her son's embrace and walked away with her head up. The remaining citizens followed, without a word from Cinder. It seemed they had unanimously agreed that keeping her safe was the priority. A chill washed down her spine as she watched them go. It wasn't long before she heard orders shouted by the guards and Maha's calm voice stating that they were unarmed and coming down voluntarily. A moment later, she saw them being shoved out toward the crowd in the square with guns pointed at their backs. Scarlet gasped. What about Winter? Cinder turned wide eyes on her. They had left the princess at Maha's house, thinking it was the safest place for her, but now- I can go, said Aiko. They won't be able to detect me like they would any of you. Cinder pressed her lips in a firm line, debating. She wanted Aiko here with her, as her only ally that couldn't be manipulated. But that also made her the best choice for securing the princess. She assented. Be careful. Sneak out through the loading bay. Aiko gave a brief nod, and then she too was gone. Cinder was shaking as she looked around at Thorn, Wolf, and Scarlet. From this far up, she wasn't able to feel the bioelectricity of the thaumaturges down in the crowd. So she was confident they couldn't feel her and her friends up here either. But that did little to comfort her. They had come for her. She knew it. She had nowhere to go. Nowhere to hide. What was more? She wasn't sure she wanted to hide. These people had put their trust in her. How could she abandon them? Amory's voice reached her ears, though he didn't yell. The sound carried upward, echoing off the hard surfaces of the factory walls. Cinder adjusted her audio interface to be sure she caught every word. Residents of Regolith Mining Sector 9, he said. You have been gathered here to face the consequences of your unlawful behavior. In harboring and aiding known criminals, you are all guilty of high treason against the crown. He paused, allowing the full impact of his words to settle. The sentence for this crime is death. Cinder's body was wound tight as she peeked through the window again. The people who had been gathered into orderly groups were forced to their knees. 
There were 2,000 residents, minus only those who had been sent as messengers into the neighboring sectors. Their kneeling bodies filled up the streets as far as she could see. He wouldn't kill all of them. He wouldn't dare reduce Luna's labor force so severely. Would he? Amory studied those gathered before him while the statue of Lavana watched over them like a proud mother. Two guards stood to either side of the fountain. Cinder recognized the red-haired guard and wondered if this was the one Wolf had scented before. The rest of the guards were spread out in their helmets and armor, boxing in the civilians with guns at the ready. The other thaumaturges remained interspersed throughout the crowd, arms tucked into their sleeves. Cinder stretched her thoughts out as far as she could, reaching, reaching for Amory's energy. If she could take control of just him, she could force him to offer mercy. He could order these people to be let go. But no, he was too far away. It frustrated her, knowing that Lavana would have been able to stretch her gift that far. Lavana could have easily controlled Amory from up here, probably could have controlled all of them from here. Cinder didn't care that her aunt had a lifetime of practice over her. She should have been as strong. She should have been capable of protecting the people who would protect her. Panting, she turned her attention to the nearest guards, those stationed beneath the window. She could detect them, at least, but they were already under the control of one of the thaumaturges. Panic simmered through her. She had to think. She still had five bullets in her hand. Thorn and Scarlet were both armed, too. She was confident she could hit one of the nearest guards and maybe even a thaumaturge, but the attempt would give away their location. Plus, as soon as Amory realized they were under attack, he would start using the sector residents as shields. She didn't know if she could risk it. She didn't know if she had a choice. However, said Amory, his dark gaze fixed on the crowd, her majesty is prepared to offer you all amnesty. Each one of you will be spared. His lips turned upward in a kind smile. All you must do is tell us where you're keeping the cyborg. Chapter 40 Cinder shoved a knuckle into her mouth, biting down hard to keep from screaming. She could feel her companion's eyes on her, but she dared not look at them. You cannot go out there, Scarlet's whisper was harsh, no doubt seeing the indecision scrawled across Cinder's face. I can't let them die for me, she whispered back. A hand grabbed her and jerked her away from the window. Wolf glared down at her, sweet and vicious Wolf, whose mother was down there, with them. She half expected him to give her away himself, but instead he grabbed Cinder's shoulders, squeezing tight. No one is dying for you. If anyone dies today, it will be because they finally have something to believe in. Don't you even think about taking that away from them now. But I can't. Cinder, get yourself together, said Thorn. You are the heart of this revolution. If you give yourself up now, it's over. And you know what? She'll probably kill all those people down there anyway, just to make sure this doesn't happen again. A gunshot made her yelp. Wolf clamped his hand over Cinder's mouth, but she ripped herself away and threw herself back at the window. White spots crowded into her vision. Then, red as fury blinded her.
In the square below, a man's body was sprawled out at Amory's feet, blood spattered across the ground. Cinder didn't know who it was, but that didn't matter. Someone was dead. Someone was dead because of her. Amory scanned the stricken faces of those closest to him, smiling pleasantly. I will ask you again, where is Lynn Cinder? They all kept their eyes pinned to the ground. No one looked at Amory. No one looked at the growing pool of blood. No one spoke. Inside her head, Cinder was screaming. The gunshot still echoed in her skull, her audio interface repeating it again and again and again. She pressed her hands over her ears, shaking, furious. She would kill Amory. She would destroy him. A body pressed against her back. Scarlet wrapped her arms around Cinder, tucking her face into the crook of Cinder's neck. To restrain her, she thought, as much as to comfort her. She didn't pull away, but she was not comforted. Below, Amory signaled to a woman seven rows back, a strategically random choice that would ensure no one felt safe. Another shot fired from one of the guards. The woman convulsed and crumpled against the person beside her. A shudder pulsed through the crowd. Cinder sobbed. Scarlet held her tighter. How long would it go on? How many would he kill? How long could she stand to wait up here and do nothing? All it takes is one person to tell me her location, said Amory. And this will be all over. We will leave you to your peaceful lives. Something damp fell on Cinder's neck. Scarlet was crying, shaking every bit as hard as she was, but her arms didn't loosen. She wanted to look away, but she forced herself not to. Their bravery left her both speechless and horrified. She found herself wishing someone would betray her, just so it would end, just so the choice would no longer be hers. Thorne took her hand and squeezed. Wolf formed a barrier to her other side, all three of them acting both as her jailers and her life raft. She knew they shared her horror, but none of them could understand the responsibility she felt clawing at her from the inside. These people trusted her to fight with them, to give them the better future she'd promised. Did it matter that they were willing to die for her cause? Did it matter that they would sacrifice their own lives so she might succeed? She didn't know. She didn't know. All she saw were blinding sparks. All she heard were gunshots pulsing through her head. Amory pointed to another victim, and Cinder's knees weakened. It was the young boy who had been so smitten with Iko. Cinder sucked in her breath, prepared to cry out, to stop it, to scream, No! Amory held up his hand. Who was that? A girl a few rows behind the boy had begun to cry hysterically. No, please, please leave him alone. She was about Cinder's age, a sister, she guessed. New tension rolled through the crowd. A few nearby people cast the girl betrayed looks, but Cinder knew it wasn't fair. This girl didn't know Cinder. Why should she protect her over someone she loved? Amory raised an eyebrow. Are you prepared to give up the cyborg's location? Maha Kesley, the girl stammered. The cyborg was being housed by Maha Kesley. 
With a flick of Amory's fingers, the guard who had targeted the boy lowered his gun. Where is this Maha Kesley? Maha stood up before anyone was forced to betray her, a pillar in the kneeling crowd. I'm here. Wolf took in a shaky breath. Come to the front, said Amory. Maha's slender shoulders were back as she walked among her friends and neighbors. A change had occurred in the short time Cinder had known her. On that first day, she had seemed beaten, heavy-shouldered, afraid. The woman who stood defiantly before the queen's head thaumaturge was someone new. It made Cinder even more terrified for her. What is the number of your residence? Amory asked. Maha gave it with a steady voice. Amory gestured at the captain of the guard and a female thaumaturge. They stepped away, signaling for one additional guard to join them as they headed toward Maha's house. Amory's attention had returned to Maha. Have you been sheltering the cyborg Lynn Cinder? I do not know that name, said Maha. The one cyborg I know is named Princess Celine Blackburn, and she is the true queen of Luna. The crowd rustled, chins lifted, shoulders squared. If anyone had forgotten why they were risking their lives for a stranger, Maha's statement reminded them. Amory smirked, cinders blood iced over. As she watched, Maha raised both of her hands over her head so everyone could see. Then she grabbed her right thumb and yanked it back hard. Cinder heard the pop even from here, followed by Maha's cry. She didn't know if Amory had forced her to break her thumb or merely dislocate it, but she didn't care. She made a decision. In another moment, she had slipped into the minds of her friends and forced them to back away from her. She spun around. Scarlet Thorn and Wolf gawked at her, dismayed. Wolf recovered first. Cinder, don't. It's the people's revolution now, not mine. Wolf, you're coming with me. I'll keep your mind under control, but not your body, just like we did in Artemisia. Thorn, Scarlet, stay here and target Amory and the other thaumaturges, but don't shoot unless you have a clear shot. Otherwise, you're just giving away your location. Cinder, no! Scarlet hissed, but Cinder was already leaving her and Thorn behind, forcing Wolf to follow in her tracks. He growled. I have to, Wolf, she said as they rushed down the staircase to the second landing. Outside, muffled by thick factory walls, she heard another cry of pain from Maha. I can't do nothing. He'll kill you. Not if we kill him first. She raced down the last staircase and braced herself. She checked that she had control of Wolf's bioelectricity, so no thaumaturge could claim him. Then pushed through the factory doors. A third scream from Maha felt like a knife in Cinder's chest. One look told her that Maha's first three fingers were bent at crippling angles. Tears were on her pain-clenched face. Here I am, Cinder bellowed. You found me. Now let her go. In one uniform movement, all the guards swiveled, turning their weapons on Cinder. She sucked in a breath, prepared to be riddled with bullets, but no one fired. Across the sea of prostrated laborers, Amory grinned. So, the imposter has finally graced us with her presence. She clenched her fists and started toward him.
The guns followed. So did Wolf, his energy crackling. You know very well that my claims are true, she said. It's the only reason Lavana is so determined to have me killed. She stretched out her thoughts to the people surrounding her, but none of their minds were available to her. She had expected as much. She had a trained killer at her side and two skilled shooters at her back. It would have to be enough. She reached the front row of the gathered civilians. You came here for me, and here I am. Leave these people alone. Amory cocked his head. His gaze swooped over Cinder, from head to toe and back up, making her feel like easy prey. She knew how she looked in her drab clothing, with her metal hand and clunky boots, her messy ponytail, and most likely, a hearty amount of dust smudged across her face. She knew that she did not look like a queen. Imagine how differently this could have gone, he said, stepping down from the fountain's ledge, if you had chosen to claim the minds of these people before our arrival. Instead, you left them adrift on the ocean of their own weaknesses. You turned them into targets and did nothing to protect them. You are not suited to be a ruler of Luna because I would rather my people know freedom than constant manipulation, because you are not capable of making the decisions a queen must make for the good of all her people. She gritted her teeth. The only people who have benefited from Lavana's regime are the greedy aristocrats in Artemisia. Lavana's not a queen, she's a tyrant. Amory bowed his head, almost like he was agreeing with her. And you, he whispered are nobody at all. I am the true ruler of Luna. Though she put as much conviction behind the words as she could, they fell flat. Within moments, the arrival of the queen's head thaumaturge had undone all the progress she'd made in this sector. With a flick of his fingers, Amory had taken away all her power and prostrated the people before him. You are a child playing at war games, said Amory, and you're too naive to see you've already lost. I'm surrendering to you, she said. And if that means I have to lose so these people can go free, so be it. What you don't seem to realize is that this isn't about me. It's about the people who have lived in oppression for far too long, Lavana's rule is coming to an end. Amory's smile grew. Behind him, the fountain gushed and spat. Wolf's energy surged behind her, hackles raised. Amory opened his arms to the crowd. Let it be known that on this day, the imposter princess surrendered to Her Majesty the Queen. Her crimes will be dealt with swiftly and justly. His eyes glimmered. However, I promised that your lives would be spared if any one of you were to give up the cyborg's location. He clicked his tongue. It is a great shame you were unwilling to do so. A shot fired. A shockwave pulsed through Cinder's body. She didn't know where it came from. She saw blood, but didn't know who had been hit. Then... Maha's legs collapsed, and she fell face first onto the hard ground. Her three deformed fingers remained stretched out over her head. Still reeling from the concussion of the gunshot, Cinder stared at Maha's body, unable to breathe, unable to move. 
She heard Wolf's intake of breath, his energy crystallized into something still and fragile. The world stilled, balancing on a needle point. Silent, incomprehensible. Another gun fired, this shot from much farther away, and the noise shoved the world off its axis. Amory crowed and stumbled back as a spot on his thigh soaked through with blood. His eyes blazed up toward the factory. Another shot hit the fountain behind him. Wolf roared and leapt forward. The nearest guard blocked his path, but was too slow to shoot. Wolf batted him away like an annoying gnat and rushed for Amory, teeth bared. A cacophony of noise and bodies erupted. Every citizen that should have been on Cinder's side instead surged to their feet and grappled for her and Wolf. Cinder's body was slammed to the ground. She lost sight of Wolf. More gunshots. Throwing a punch to someone's jaw, she rolled once and scrambled back to her feet. She spotted a red coat, raised her hand, and fired. She waited long enough to see the thaumaturge buck back before she was searching for another target. But she didn't get off another shot as dozens of hands grabbed her, pulled her, wrestled her to the ground. Cinder thrashed against their hold, blowing a lock of hair from her face. She spotted Wolf. He, too, was pinned to the ground, though it had taken a dozen men to do it. Every limb was held in place, his cheek pressed into the dust. The bodies of two guards and one miner lay not far away. Amory loomed above him, panting, his constant smile nowhere to be seen. He had one hand pressed over the wound in his leg. The shots are coming from that factory. Send a team to search it and bind these two before they try anything else. Cinder strained against the arms holding her. If she could raise her arms, take one clean shot. Her arms were yanked behind her, her wrists bound. She screamed as her shoulder was pulled just shy of dislocation. She was hauled back to her feet, coughing on dust, her entire body throbbing. She glanced around, searching for an ally, but only blank faces greeted her. She sneered, defiant, as she and Wolf were forced to kneel in front of Amory's livid face. She was dizzy with her own hatred, but as her thoughts settled, she was hit with the full force of Wolf's agony beside her. He was in anguish, his emotions splintering, and Cinder remembered that the body of the miner beside him was his mother. Cinder shuddered and had to look away. She spotted the red-coated thaumaturge she'd shot, not moving, and another in a black uniform also lying not far away. That was all. Two thaumaturges and two guards killed. Amory injured. That was all she had gotten from Maha's sacrifice and the brave deaths of two other innocent civilians. Cinder was more angry than afraid, feeding on Wolf's devastation and the horror of all the blank faces around her. All these people used like marionettes. She believed what she'd said before. Lavana could kill her, but Cinder had to believe her death wouldn't be the end. This revolution no longer belonged to her.